Hello and welcome to TIFO Talks. This is the final episode in the current mini-series, a podcast in which usually John McKenzie gets to speak to someone uh, from or around the game of football. But today I've stolen the hot seat uh, in order to speak to David Goldblatt, John. Mm, yes, David Goldblatt, friend of the of the podcast. Friend of the podcast, David Goldblatt, a uh, script writer for, for TIFO upon occasion too, and uh, probably most famous uh, for being uh, an incredible author and uh, I guess kind of historian of football as well. Uh, he wrote The Ball is Round, uh, which is maybe, I suppose, would be described as his, his seminal work. Uh, and more recently, he's also written The Age of Football, which came out uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, The Global Game in the 21st Century. Both of those are excellent. And of course, there are, there are many others in between as well. Um, but today we speak specifically, I hear you ask, John about Qatar because of course the World Cup starts on Sunday uh, if you're listening to this on the day of release this is a Thursday the World Cup starts on on Sunday and it's you know one of the more controversial World Cups in history uh, there have been a handful I think we've all heard about those before but today we speak specifically about what those controversial problems are as it relates to to Qatar and what kind of response that should engender among ordinary people who are seeking to watch the game. I, I begin by saying to, to David that I know, you know a couple of people who, um, for personal reasons, have decided probably not to watch the World Cup or, or maybe to engage with it less than they might have otherwise done. And uh, we talk about whether that can be like the right response. Obviously, personally, it's fine, uh, but whether that can be a sort of a, a broader response or what other sort of responses one might have uh, to a complicated situation like this. And it's complicated for you you and I as well. One of the reasons I was interested to talk to David is because I've been thinking about this for six years. And, you know, six years ago, I think the second ever TIFO video, the third one ever maybe, was about this issue, the issue of, um, of migrant worker deaths in Qatar. And uh, I wasn't sure if I'd st- still be working in this industry six years later. I am. You and I are about to cover the World Cup, so I was partly curious to, you know, know what like my role and your role is in 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 this whole confusing moral situation. Yeah, it's a tricky one, I think, and certainly uh, again, questions I I've been asking myself as well in the run up to this World Cup. Before I joined Tifo, I could feasibly have not really watched it that much, and and so that again raises those sorts of questions. So I'm looking forward to listening to this one. Yeah, well, David has some interesting takes, so uh, I hope everybody enjoys this episode. As I said, this is the final episode of Tifo Talks for the time being, uh, but we are going to return in February for another eight special episodes, starting uh, probably at the beginning of February. So look out for those. I'm sure they'll be magnificent. And if you are a listener of note. Yeah, if you're a famous person or if you do something interesting in football, if you've got something interesting to talk about, then feel free to, to reach out to John McKenzie on Twitter as well, um, because we don't know everyone that's interesting. OK, cool. Uh, let's hand it over then to Mr. David Goldblatt. David, thanks very much for joining us. There's a few things I want to talk to you about today, all centred around the Qatar World Cup. But the first of which is just to ask you, I suppose, for anyone listening who is kind of uninitiated to the World Cup so far, what are, the, broadly speaking, the you know controversial issues around the World Cup? Why is it considered controversial? So there's about five or six big issues that people are talking about, about Qatar 2022. Probably the first, as is often the way, with World Cups is uh, people have criticised Qatar for the way in which they won the bid back in 2010 and the means that they used uh, to do so. The Sunday Times 
uh, has had a very long running and very detailed investigation into the bidding process and has argued that at best very dubious practices were involved in that bid. So that's yep. the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing that people are concerned about is Qatar's uh, human rights record, in particular women's rights and the position of women in Qatar, LGBT rights in Qatar where homosexuality remains illegal and the consequences of that for fans and anybody else who is visiting Qatar. And then press freedom, the treatment of journalists in, uh, in Qatar is a, uh, a, red, um, a red car for some people. The third thing that um, I think people are concerned about and the one that has certainly had the most airtime is the treatment and the plight of Qatar's migrant workers who have been toiling for the last decade in extraordinary temperatures in the desert to build not only the World Cup stadiums and the uh, most obvious World Cup infrastructure, but one of the greatest infrastructure bonanzas that has ever happened. I mean, Qatar has spent something in the region of a quarter of a trillion dollars, $250 billion, which to put it in perspective is the, uh, the GDP of Bangladesh, a country of 80 million people or more on World Cup stuff. Just to interject very quickly, they would say about that, that they uh, they are spent, they would have spent that anyway, even if the World Cup wasn't happening there. Now, whether you think that's true or not, there's a different question, I suppose, but that, that would be their line on the 250 billion. Yeah, and they're perfectly, I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't, I don't think the problem is that they've spent 250 billion. I mean, it's their money. Who are we to say how you should develop your society? So I, it's not the 250 billion that I think is the issue. Um, And I think they certainly would have spent a lot of it. I think that the World Cup has emboldened and empowered the Qatari elite, both the state, the real estate developers, the construction companies, and they've really gone for it. You know, there were more restrained versions of uh, Doha's development that could have been embarked upon. And I think the World Cup has given a lot of energy to Qatari politics and given it a focus. And I think that has raised the level I mean, they certainly weren't going to build as many hotels, for example, as they've uh, currently built without the World Cup. They weren't going to rebuild their old airport. I mean, they built a brand new international airport on a kind of pharaonic scale. And even that wasn't big enough for the World Cup because so many people are coming. So they've had to spend a load of money rebuilding the old international airport. So the World Cup has heightened what was always going to be a pretty kind of extraordinary program of development. Yeah. But yeah, the condition of the migrant workers who have built all of that is a huge issue. On the one hand, it's an issue about mortality, about how many people have died in the last decade. But it's more than just that. It's also about the scale of injuries uh, that have been faced by workers, the conditions under which they have laboured in terms of housing and food and access to medical care. It's been about the kind of wages they're getting and above all, the wages that they're not getting. There has been a huge amount of wage theft, of people not being paid, of people being completely turned over by the system and with no recompense, no trade unions. So there's a whole range of issues around workers' rights. Number four is the environmental issues raised by uh, the World Cup. And very broadly speaking, the argument is... This is an incredibly carbon-intensive event, emitting 
you know, according to the Qataris, 3.6 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, which is as big as and probably bigger than any Olympic Games and on the scale of, you know, a small Caribbean island's annual emissions, possibly more. And that this is all from hydrocarbon wealth. And here we are at this moment of the climate crisis and we're going to burn, you know, our last bit of our carbon budget playing international football. And that is a concern. There is also the concern that the Qataris' arguments about their own environmental policy and how they're doing this are no more than greenwashing. I mean, that's where the debate is. Okay, <laughs> that's quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it is a lot. It is a lot. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons it, it feels uh, difficult. You know, like I um, was excited to talk to you about, about this. We, we've sort of spoken about this before, not on podcast format. But the last time we spoke about this, I told you that I have a, you know, a couple of friends who have decided or are thinking about whether or not to watch the tournament. Uh, or whether to, you know, not, I don't think like actively or proactively boycott it, but just their own personal choice while they're here at home in the UK, maybe they won't watch the football in December, which is, as you know, for a football fan, it feels sort of like it's a stunning thing to have to think about whether you would want to do that or not. But, you know, firstly, like, do you understand why people would make that decision to not watch it? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I, I have no problem, you know, with people who take the position that I am not going to watch, you know, a football tournament in a country where human rights are of such a poor level, where LGBT rights are non-existent, etc, etc. These are all completely plausible moral and ethical arguments. The tricky thing, I think, for all of us to think about, myself included, is that this also applies to many other tournaments and many other aspects of football. For example, the very poor treatment of vulnerable workers is precisely what underlies the entire global sportswear industry. Yeah. Every time we buy a, uh, a football shirt or indeed a football, we are plugging into an appalling system of labor abuse all over the world. I mean, it remains the case that of you know, the $100 that you're paying up for a new World Cup football, less than 1% of that is going to the workforce. And the workforce has no trade union rights, a terrible health and safety record, and in the worst kind of uh, bits of the subcontracting chain, really, really appalling labor and conditions. So in terms of consistency, you know, one could make the argument if you're gonna boycott Qatar, you know, maybe you wanna boycott football altogether, or certainly the purchase of football shirts. Similarly, you know, rightly people are arguing, you know, I am not going to watch a tournament which is, in essence, a soft political power exercise for um, what is in effect an absolutist monarchy built on hydrocarbon money. I think that's like fair enough. Does that mean that we're going to stop watching Manchester City and Newcastle United and PSG? all of whom, you know, function in exactly the same way. PSG yeah. for Qatar, Manchester City for Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia for Newcastle United. Yeah. So we have to think about if we are to be consistent, and it's okay, it's also all right to be inconsistent, as we often are in our ethical choices and decisions. And I'm not trying to point the finger at anyone here, but I would just ask everyone to reflect on, on this I mean, similarly, you know, if we were 
to be consistent. I mean, should we have been watching Russia 2018? Yeah, I was going to ask. You know, another hydrocarbon state that staged a World Cup while at the same time actively repressing LGBT folk in Russia with some really nasty legislation and some really nasty police activity, which used the World Cup to create basically a Potemkin village in which, you know, we're all looking at Bacchanalian celebrations in public space in St. Petersburg or um, in Moscow, thinking, oh, how cosmopolitan and fun Russia can be when it lets its hair down. And at the same time, you know, the uh, the Russians have used the opening game as the day to announce the most fundamental and unequal reform of the pension uh, law ever, triggering um, gigantic levels of protest in all of the non-World Cup cities, which are then being actively repressed while the World Cup's going on. And of course, no one's watching because we're all watching lovely, gentle Latino nationalism of the Peruvians, you know, who are having a great time. So there's a very, you know, very strong case. Should we have watched Russia, you know, 2018? I mean, and when it comes to the Beijing Olympics 2022, you also think like, really? How could we possibly be watching that kind of event, you know, when what, according to the UN, is a genocide is going on amongst the Uyghur people, let alone all the long list of uh, human rights and environmental issues one could level against the Chinese. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Can I ask you then, like, I, I want to come back to talk about the idea of, like, whataboutery generally, because it's, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a thing in the kind of public consciousness now. So we sure. should address that as well. But as sure. it relates specifically to the, you know, Beijing Olympics and to Russia in 2018, why is it that there is so much more awareness about the long list of things that you talked about at the beginning as it relates to Qatar, but with those two uh, events and places, the, whilst there were people absolutely writing about it, it really didn't feel like it was part of the conversation to the same degree. Why do you think that is? So I think there are, there are three reasons. So the first reason is that Qatar for foreign journalists and NGOs is much more open than China and Russia. If you want to go and investigate in Qatar, nobody's making it easy for you. And you can certainly run into all sorts of trouble. But by comparison to doing that sort of investigative work in China and Russia, where frankly, you've got absolutely no chance whatsoever of getting anything done. You know, Qatar is much more open. The second reason is that the Russians and the Chinese actually don't give a shit what we think. They're beyond that. This is not about soft power. You know, notice us, include us in your thinking. We are part of the international community. Look at all the good things we do. They don't care about that. That's not the mission. You know, China and Russia at those mega events are saying, you know, we are great global powers and we will do it our way. And we don't care what you think. Whereas the Qataris, and this has always been the case, this was the purpose of the exercise of winning and hosting the World Cup, is that they do care what the rest of the world thinks. It's actually very important to them. So you've got, there's a soft underbelly, if you like, to the soft power politics. 
Um, the third reason is that Western NGOs have done a really good job and Western journalists have done a really good job. You know, Amnesty International, the International Trade Union uh, Council, the International uh, Woodworkers um, uh, Trade Union, Human Rights Watch, Fair Square, all of these organisations have been on it for a decade. And there's been some really, really good journalistic and campaigning work done. The Guardian has also been at the centre of that. And I don't think you've had such an alliance, such a sort of coalition for any other mega event before. So you put those three together and we've now had nearly a decade of reporting on Qatar, whereas most of the time with mega events, you know, I mean, if you get anything six months beforehand, you're doing yeah. well. Yeah. And this has been relentless. And they have been very, very effective in building support over the last 10 years for that. And we've all heard a lot more about that. And, you know, the plight of workers in Qatar is, it doesn't take much to work out how awful, awful it is. You know, people just going, wow, what, working in 45 degrees centigrade in the desert, pouring concrete? That is very tangibly and obviously awful in a way that, I don't think has been so visible or so obviously graspable in the case of, say, China and Russia. Though, you know, in the case of Russia, we shouldn't forget that the stadiums were completed by pretty much near slave labor from North Korea. Folks who are allowed out of North Korea and then have to pay their wages back to the government in Pyeongchang yeah. and are kept under, you know, really appalling conditions. And it was only about a couple of months before Russia 2018 that that story began to surface. But for Qatar, it's been a decade of this. Yeah. Do you think also it is in the ease of grasping the, the problems? Like with the Qatar World Cup, you, you, you mentioned the list of six before, and obviously a, a big part of the conversation has been human rights for people within the country. But also, I think the largest part of the conversation has centred around the deaths of migrant workers and the numbers of people that have died and attributing that to uh, the infrastructure of the World Cup. It seems like there's like quite an easy numerical way where you, know, you can literally put a number on how bad it is. Whereas with the examples of China and Russia before, it, do you think it's like it's a little harder or it's a little bit more nebulous to grasp what all the problems are? Oh, totally. I mean, the report, um, which I think came from the International Trade Union Confederation back in 2013, which put a number on it and said 6,000 migrant workers are going to die between now and the staging of the World Cup. That is a piece of PR genius. And everybody's been on that ever since. And although actually the numbers are much more complicated uh, than that, the Qataris have been on the defensive. They've yeah. never been able to kind of, you know, in the end, really, really effectively respond to that. So I think it does make a difference. I mean, I should say, and I hate to be quibbling over numbers, particularly where we're talking about a lot of people dying it yeah. seems very distasteful at one level but i do think we probably just need to review that data for a moment and this is not to suggest that very considerable numbers of people have died and that a lot of human pain and tragedy has occurred but the 6000 figure is wrong the 6000 figure that was originally proposed was not actually dead people but it was a projection they're saying well with a migrant community this size and at the current levels of mortality that we see amongst that community, 6,000 people will die between now and uh, 2022. Yeah. So the first thing to say is that 
not everybody who dies as a migrant worker is dying at work. You know, that figure also includes 60-year-old Indian accountants who've been in Qatar for two generations who have a heart attack at their desk. Yeah. Um, and, a, you know, people who die in uh, car crashes, for example, which yeah. is actually a very considerable cause of death. So that number is actually considerably lower than 6,000. On the other hand, you know, you've got the Supreme Council for Delivery and Legacy, um, or is it Legacy and Delivery? I think it's Delivery and Legacy, who are the (laughs) people in charge. And they're saying, well, actually, it's only three people. And they say it's only three people because they only count deaths on a very, very narrow tranche of World Cup projects, basically the stadiums. um, Quite literally on a construction site. Yeah, yeah. They're saying on our construction sites. But... The Supreme Council stuff, that's where the absolute highest standards of health and safety and regulation go on in Qatar. They're all focused on that very, very narrow range. And there are much, much better conditions there are um, more widely. Um, They also have, and this is a problem in Qatar generally, we have a real problem with how deaths are recorded. There, until very recently, you had a post-mortem system that barely existed. So someone might die, but actually having any real tangible medical evidence about what was the cause of this how did this occur has you know only just been introduced so i think again there has been a big undercounting by the supreme council and then there's the question of you know where do you draw the line all of these projects have gigantic complex supply chains and service chains to make them happen and that of course is where most of the really poor conditions for most workers are occurring and the supreme council are just saying no that's nothing to do with us and it's like come on guys this is a whole project of which the world cup is the centerpiece you know we're looking at this thing as a whole you can't just say it's only our tiny stadium little projects that count so i think you know is it in the middle there's been a very considerable number of deaths on the whole infrastructure construction bonanza of the last decade. It's not 6,000, but it's not three deaths either. And I think while this is, while obviously this is tragic and awful, I think it sometimes diverts us from the gigantic levels of problems that are elsewhere. I mean, the, uh, you know, the number of life-changing injuries that have been experienced by construction workers without compensation or with very minimalist compensation is incredibly important and is not getting enough coverage. Similarly, the whole problem of uh, um, illegal agents. So Qatar has made it illegal for agents outside the country to take money for placing foreign workers with a job in Qatar. However, it persists, and the majority of the workers in Qatar are on the lower rungs of the labor market, you know, the people who are building stadiums and roads, They've often paid up thousands and thousands of dollars to an agent to get them there in the first place. And then they're paying actually most of their wages back to pay this off. And that puts them in a completely impossible and incredibly vulnerable position. And well, they put it against their homes at, back at home, don't they? As well, like they're kind of. Like, yeah. I've read about people kind of mortgaging or like putting putting a loan against their property, so they have to keep working in order not to have their family homeless back at home. Absolutely, absolutely, and it makes you so vulnerable inside Qatar to the whims of your employer, which 
given that there are no trade unions and given until recently that your sponsor in Qatar would hold your passport and your identity documents and determine whether you could leave the country and whether you could change job or not, just put workers in a completely impossible, incredibly vulnerable position. So all of those things really, really important. I mean, as part of the critique, it's not just about the mortality issues. It's about all of these things. On the other hand, I think this needs to be said, there has been change in Qatar. When the World Cup was won by Qatar, the labour migration and regulation system was the kafala system. The kafala system is common all across the Gulf, and that's worth remembering. This is exactly what happens in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and so on, which I've just described, where you have to have, it's not a state-run system, It's not a state bureaucracy. It's a highly personalised relationship between you and your employer. They hold your documents. They hold control over entry and exit from the country. Uh, You couldn't get another job. You're basically bounded, bonded labour, in effect, in a super vulnerable, super unequal condition, you know, with minimalist oversight. No way of kind of very difficult to fight back. uh, No trade unions, etc., etc. And... What we actually have now is something really quite different. Qatar, under uh, the relentless pressure from Human Rights Watch, from Amnesty International, etc., etc., has dismantled its kafala system. In 2017, um, the Qatari government signed an agreement with the International Labour Organization, which is a subset of the UN, and they opened an office in Doha, and over the next three to four years, they came up with a plan for dismantling the kafala system and replacing it with a state-run, more anonymous, bureaucratized system of labor migration with uh, some minimalist protection and regulation for the workforce. And that's quite a thing. That is actually quite a thing. Now, opponents rightly say, well, you know, too little, too late. Will this stick around after the World Cup anyway? Because there were plenty of people in Qatar who didn't want to get rid of the kafala system because they've all been making great money out of it. Yeah. But actually, change has occurred. I mean, no one would say that, you know, Qatar's labour market is Denmark or Sweden, but um, it's in a completely different place to its near neighbours. And, you know, one of the arguments that gets made for staging mega events in authoritarian closed undemocratic societies is that when you do so you are exposed to global scrutiny and international norms and this forces a degree of openness and change now of course when this argument was made for beijing 2008 olympics how we all laughed because of course that isn't what happened at all but here in the case of qatar i think actually a reasonable case can be made for saying actually that is what's happened So that's not to suggest that is by any means perfect. I mean, no, I personally can't, you know, get too excited about a labour system that bans trade unions, which is still the case in Qatar. But there really has been, you know, the World Cup has forced change. And that's a really interesting, that that is part of the equation to think about. I mean, that's certainly part of the equation for me. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about this for 
well, probably for, really for four or five years. Um, I think Tifo first, you know, released its first video about five or six years ago. And actually one of the first videos we ever released was written by me and it was illustrated by me. It's a terrible video. <laughs> we have all, all better people doing those things now. Um, but it was about Qatar and it was about whether people should boycott the tournament or not. Um, and, and at the time, I kind of, you know, tried to like lay out the arguments for and, and against that. And in my mind... The arguments haven't really changed. I think I thought then, well, I've got six years until the World Cup starts. Uh, I don't know if I'll be working in football media by then, transpires that I am, but I've got six years to work it out. And I, I do genuinely feel no closer <laughs> to understanding like what, what I'm supposed to think about it or not. It's very useful to talk to people like you. But what you just touched on is kind of my central point when it comes to the whole tournament right there are kind of it seems to me two approaches you could take to something like this and by like this i mean a mega sporting event in an authoritarian nation one is to is to boycott it or to not watch it or not engage in it or you know even at a broader level not allow the tournament to take place there and i guess that would be seen as a kind of like an exclusionary international approach or one the other one is is to engage in it to allow the tournament to be there to watch it and to hope that what you described a moment ago you hope that the extra scrutiny that is applied to the authoritarian nation in this circumstance then forces real change then you sit around and argue about whether that change would have occurred or not without a tournament like that whether that's kind of hastening something that that yeah would have happened anyway it's it, I, it's, it's really unclear but I'm not sure that there is like a, uh, there's not an easy binary yes or no between those two options, are there? I mean, it's almost always context specific, because as you say, in the case of Beijing 2022 Olympics, that logic just doesn't hold. But you, you think it, it, it maybe it does with Qatar, or at least do you think it's beholden upon the, the individual to, to decide if it applies for them? I think that, I have no doubt actually, that in the absence of the World Cup, the kafala system would not have been dismantled and okay. would not have been reformed. Um, there were too many people, you know, amongst the narrow Qatari citizenship, which is like the 300,000 people who actually have a passport in Qatar, too many people making too much money out of it. And, you know, people not having, they were fine with it. There is a more liberal, progressive element in the Qatari elite that has been arguing that they need, across a whole range of areas, to reform and they have been the weaker part i think of the uh of the qatari polity um and they have been given uh, in effect um, a massive great push by the world cup and the exposure that qatar has had and the relentless criticism that has fallen on it and i don't think you would have had this reform without the world cup again a reasonable caveat is to say mm, so what's going to happen afterwards and also to say well and the reforms you know, actually on the ground are not nearly as good as they look on paper. I mean, this is true of most things. And there are serious concerns over the last few months, you know, from people still protesting about not getting their wages to the continuing poor conditions and exclusionary practices that migrant workers suffer. But I think change, the World Cup actually has brought change in effect or given the human rights world kind of uh, a big enough lever to affect change. So I think that is, that, that's a strong argument. On the boycott issue, I am, in general, I'm for boycotts. I think they can be very powerful. I think, however, with boycotts, you've got to have a plan, and you can't do it at the last minute. 
Yeah. And my, my, when these conversations have happened over the last few years, my first question has always been, okay, what, what's the ask? You know, with the situation of apartheid South Africa, which is the most successful, I would say, boycott campaign that's been conducted in global sport, you know, there was a very clear agenda. You must end apartheid and you must allow, you know, colorblind sport, right? You can't have ethnic segregation in sport. Very, yeah. very clear demands. And with a substantial number of South Africans, you know, in the opposition, also supporting and calling for it. Yeah. And of course, it took, you know, 20 years of that to have an impact. But it didn't have an impact and it was powerful. So my question has been, what is the ask of Qatar? And I don't think anybody's quite hitherto really come up with one. I mean, I think certainly I should just say that Amnesty's call for FIFA and Qatar to establish a major recompense fund uh, yeah. around a billion dollars to basically pay off everybody's illegal debts amongst the migrant workers and, you know, provide some recompense for those families that have suffered, you know, loss and injury. You know, that would have been a possible contender because that's a very specific, very doable ask. But yeah. this has only happened in the last few months and boycotts to actually work take years to prepare. You can't just do it if you're actually serious about it on the fly. It's got to be a serious, coordinated political action. So I think it's a bit too late for organised boycotting in that fashion. I mean, I think it's interesting that there will be displays of resistance and challenge at the World Cup. You know, there's a lot of international teams, including England, talking about wearing a rainbow armband. Yeah. And from what I can see, FIFA and the Qataris are going to actually have to let that one go. So that will be happening. You've got the Danes with their, you know, more black in mourning uh, change strip, as yeah. well as removing, you know, various insignia. And I think there will be quite a bit of that. I think there'll be quite a lot more of that. And I'm really interested to see uh, what the Iranians do uh, when they play uh, against England with regard to the protests that are going on back in Iran. So I think there yeah. will be there will be some of that. I mean, more generally, you know, the bigger picture of this is, OK, so where do we want to go in the future? If you don't like Qatar 2022, not unreasonably, like what's one going to do about that to stop that happening in the future? It might be that there need to be much more stringent environmental, you know, human rights control over mega event allocation. But given the levels of kind of self-serving corruption in all of the institutions, it's quite hard to see at the moment <laughs> how that actually, you know, really, really happens. Or reflects um, anything and I else also... that happens in the rest of the world. That's the, that's the other issue, right? Like, I think, I'm not, I don't think sports is held to a different standard or different account. I think people wish it wish it was and want it to be because they love it it's a thing that they love as opposed yeah. to global politics and international trade which is uh, you know i don't speak for everyone but i would imagine not a thing that everyone actively loves on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> so you know i think people want yeah. sports to be pure in a way that they they don't care whether other things are or not or, you know don't care i mean they, i think I, I think that's you know i un i understand that i think it's a quixotic uh position to take because sport never has been and never will be no. pure it's and as actually with the reality of politics and ethics it's like what can you actually authentically live with because you know nothing is perfect so 
There is an issue, and I think that immediately takes us beyond, as I said earlier, Qatar 2022. I mean, if we're really saying no more Qatar 2022s, then we're also saying, you know, no more Beijing 2022s. We're also saying, I think, you know, Abu Dhabi and Qatar and Saudi Arabia out of European football. I mean, how can that be cool at the same time? So I wanted to bring it back to to what aboutery we've kind of like talked about this we talked about the beginning it's come up as a theme throughout and it's something which is a a very easy term to use as a criticism when you're arguing online with someone about uh you know this situation or, or a situation similar to this lots of the things we've said so far in this conversation are okay well qatar is is complicated for these reasons but then what about russia and what about uh, beijing and it um it becomes a sort of catch-all and I think as soon as it's introduced into the conversation like whilst it's completely necessary because you have to address the context it also then becomes sort of impossible to get to any resolution because there's always going to be a what about like at what point do you down it depends what you mean by what about though Joe you know a lot of what aboutery is using implausible inaccurate and unsuitable comparisons in an attempt to undermine or distort an ethical argument. But in this case, when one says, what about Russia or China? One is thinking about ethical consistency. These are not irrelevant comparisons. These are sporting mega events held in authoritarian societies with a great many reasons to be deeply disturbed about their hosting and any cultural or political gain that they might make for them yes that's entirely consistent um and i think that's the same and this is not to say that there are not really serious concerns about qatar and that there are really serious ethical questions and that we need to address them what i'm suggesting is that if we are finally getting around to engaging with these issues and many of the people who complain about what about are people who have not engaged with these issues and not thought about <laughs> them even though they've been going on for decades and decades yeah. well here we all are now having a grown-up political conversation about uh, the ethics of international football and international sport and its political dimensions now we're having that argument let's have it in the round there's no point getting on one's high horse about saying i'm not going to watch qatar uh, but i also don't want to talk about their ownership of psg or abu dhabi's ownership of manchester city or the kind of unbelievably awful labor um, conditions that are involved in producing footballs and football shirts and football boots yeah i just it, it's not an irrelevant it's all part of the same you know I, global I football political economy i agree with you and i, I think those those um, comparisons are, are completely relevant to the conversation i didn't mean to suggest that you were bringing in, in irrelevant things what the reason i say this is because like at the kind of point of access to this conversation for your ordinary person like anyone who isn't david goldblatt and doesn't you know spend like all the time writing and thinking about these things um <laughs> when you then. are i know when you are <laughs> just like you know an ordinary person who wants to watch the world cup but has a kind of you know that there is a a conflict between what their general moral outlook and ethical outlook on the world might be and then some of the things that they see in Qatar or as an example or we can use Russia in 2018 as an example Beijing 2022 when someone comes to that conflict and then they start to think about what maybe their personal response to that will be and then they you know get into a conversation about it and all of these very relevant what about this topic what about that topic comes up 
the reason I say that is because it becomes to the individual, it becomes, it feels very like impossible to do anything about it or to know where to start or like what your individual response can be. It becomes overwhelming. And, you know, I think every conversation I had in the pub in my 20s ended up at like, you either live in a cabin in the woods or you completely embrace the system. I know that's not how it works. But you said at the beginning of this conversation that inconsistencies are okay. And I think that's like the crucial part of this whole conversation, isn't it? They're like, it's okay if somebody feels that, okay, well, for them personally, they want to, you know, they want to not uh, engage with this thing, but they're going to engage with other things that, 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 that might cause an inconsistency in their ethical approach. Because otherwise it feels like impossible for someone to be entirely consistent. Not that that shouldn't be the aim. You can't but be consistent possible. in this world. We're all locked into gigantic and profoundly unequal and ethically problematic structures of economic and political organisation, <laughs> which we didn't personally create, and over which as individuals. And, you know, the individualism of these debates, um, you yeah. know, is part of the problem. It's about collective action. So what I would say right, is if right. one wants to not watch, just like draw the line and say, you know, I'm not watching Qatar, you know, for all of these reasons, fair enough. What I would encourage people to do is, number one, get informed, you know, because so much of the conversation hitherto about both Qatar and about the rest of the football world is dreadfully ill-informed. So I would get informed about what is actually going on. Secondly, you know, if you're feeling like you want to do something about it, but you also don't want to engage in a personal boycott, give Amnesty International a few bucks. Go and check out the people who've been doing all the hard work on the ground to make the case for workers' rights and to push things along. Follow them on Twitter, you know, see what they're saying, support what their activities are, give them a few quid. I think that's a perfectly kind of plausible and ethically consistent response, you know, and don't just leave it at Qatar above all. If you're now engaging you know, in a serious way, emotionally, morally, ethically, with the politics of global sport, you know, great, I'm so pleased, come on in. It's not a comfortable space to be in, and it's not always clear what the right thing to do is, but yeah. be part of it. You know, part of the reason that, that, you know, so much of this stuff happens is that much of the public and much of the footballing public is 99.9% .9 of the time completely indifferent to this stuff. Mm. And the the most useful thing that can come out of it is with a small p, politicisation of the global football public, who then actually, you know, start thinking about this stuff, not just yeah. over Qatar, but all the time. And that will change the politics and the pressure and the assumptions of key powerful actors in the industry and in global politics. So it does yeah. make a change. It's funny, I, I, I sometimes think about, um, do you remember the band Million Dead? Forgive me, I don't. No, that's fine. Uh, they, they were a sort of like a, a, a very loud uh, rock band in the early 2000s. The, the lead singer was, uh, is Frank Turner, who's had, gone on to have a solo career as well. But they had one uh, song I found very funny. It was called uh, Charlie and the Proper Propaganda Myth Machine. And there is a bit of that song where he, he talks about the idea that if uh, children weren't all obsessed with chocolate and they could collectivize, <laughs> they'd be like the, the most powerful uh, union in the world. And I often think that about football fans. <laughs> I think like football is 
this weird thing that crosses like every, you know, every national border and every different kind of professional industry and every different kind of, you know, class in England, for example. And I've met so many people that, that have watched TIFO videos or listened to the podcast and they just all come from these different places. I don't know anything else like that. Uh, that that can you know captivate the attention of all people across this magnificent sphere, and you do feel sometimes like if just some more of them paid attention, like you said, or were just like you know activated by something. That's such a powerful group of people, isn't it? Totally. Football is the most popular popular cultural phenomena in the world, and it is becoming literally with every passing day more and more obvious that it is also the world's greatest public political theatre. You know, from expressions of racism and anti-racism, you know, of heinous examples of the patriarchy at work to the most extraordinary public theatres of, you know, women's liberation and challenge to the dominant order. You know, we're getting this served up to us on a plate all of the time in football. Uh, And um, I believe it would make a really important difference if more folks, you know, who are enjoying and loving the game as we do, also started checking in with this dimension. And I'm not telling people what to think or what side to take or how to operate, but stage one is recognize football for what it is. All this idea that it is a kind of pure or purely kind of commercial entertainment zone or somehow kind of like uh, something that is disengaged from all the messy and difficult environmental, political and economic issues in this world. It's like, stop kidding yourselves. This mm. is a fundamentally wrong assumption. It is completely, completely inconceivable that football can operate like that. It's not about no politics, it's about what politics. And that's a process. People now need to think, I would encourage people to think and to read and to engage on these issues and yeah. come to what their political conclusions are. But the idea that this is not, to use the classic football cliche, part and parcel of the game <laughs> is just not sustainable in the 21st century. You kind of got to take, you, you know, it, it, it demands at the very least our enjoyment and our pleasures in engaging with global football demand at the very least this minimal level of kind of global football citizenship that you recognize that actually an enormous amount politically and culturally is at stake and you need eventually to take sides and decide where you stand on these issues yeah well hopefully that has put pay to the numerous people who leave comments beneath our videos saying leave politics out of football (laughs) because um i mean guys get real just get real you know, I mean, in an era, Joe, where the Chinese, you know, set the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party has made it an official marker of social development that China should uh, achieve Xi Jinping's three wishes, that China should qualify again for the Men's World Cup, that they should host it and that they should win it by 2050 as official markers of social development. Yeah. Like, come on, people, get real, <laughs> get real. Um, I can. I assume then you, you, you know, you, you will be watching the World Cup. Where, where, where will you be watching from? I'm going to watch the first half in California, where I'm currently living and teaching, mm. and it's so great to be 
The one good thing about having uh, the World Cup in November is that I finally get to teach the World Cup during term time. Ah. Um, so there's a there's a little uh, uh, educational blessing. And then I shall be back in uh, the UK for um, the second half. And I shall watch it. Um, I do watch it, you know, with a consciously, with a slightly heavy heart and with a recognition that Qatar 2022 and many of our pleasures and forms of consumption are rooted in a globally unequal labour market and a really terrible distribution of the spoils and the wealth of this world. But that's true of a, it's true of a lot of stuff. So I recognise that I shall be looking out for and supporting and amplifying the protests uh, and the challenges um, that occur. But I shall also, at some level, you know, just be really enjoying what is our greatest collective cosmopolitan festival and celebration of a collective humanity. And in a very fractured global world, that is actually a very, that's a very precious thing and a very important thing. And I think it's important, I should say, that it's happening in, for the first time, in a Muslim-majority Arab-speaking country. Yeah. I think that's really important. It's kind of a shame um, that's and, been lost in, in, in everything, isn't it? In a better, you know, in another world, you know, maybe we'd be watching, you know, the Iran-Iraq-Kurdistan joint hosting of, yeah. uh, of the World Cup, which would be a truly, truly extraordinary event. But again, we must get real, that's not happening. So it falls to Qatar to occupy this slot. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an ambivalent experience. But then I kind of think if you've got your head sort of if you know about how this if you like if you know how the sausage is made, then you're going to be ambivalent about eating any of them, not just Qatar 2022. Um, but that's like, you know, welcome to the modern world. Moral ambivalence, political complexity, the necessary, the, you know, the need for complex forms of kind of compromise and protest. Yeah. I mean, that's how, you know, I wish it were other. I wish things were just like really simple, you know. But as we know, the queue for the simple but wrong solutions is very long. Uh, <laughs> and the queue for the complicated difficult, unsatisfactory, partial, but plausible solutions is very short. But that's the queue we all need to be in. Yes, well, I attempt to join you in the queue at every possible opportunity, <laughs> but I do admit that I, I often stand in the easy queue, uh, just at least to relax at the weekends. Um, David Gobert, do you have anything else you would like to add, or shall I wrap this up? I mean, I think we could talk a little bit about just about the environmental question. Yeah, please I do. Think, if you would like. I mean, again, it's... a uh, the environmental issue at Qatar 2022 is complicated. On the one hand, you know, you can say Qatar 2022 has the most sophisticated and advanced environmental policy of any World Cup. I mean, you know, Russia 2018 was meant to have, you know, be carbon zero and have an environmental plan. And again, how we all laughed at that. But Qatar 2022 actually has a serious plan. On the other hand, and that's to be really welcomed, you know, and it means that Qatar is under a level of scrutiny that nobody else has been before because nobody actually has put up a plausible document or set of claims before. Yeah. So that is all to be welcomed. And the Qataris are to be applauded and indeed FIFA for that. On the other hand, it's pretty clear 
as the Carbon Market Watch report that came out earlier this year, um, that the Qataris uh, and FIFA have massively underestimated the levels uh, of emissions that the uh, tournament has generated and that their plan to offset much of the uh, carbon emissions um, through investment in renewable energy projects and investment in reforestation projects, so stuff that takes carbon out of the atmosphere to make up for all the carbon you've put into it, the claims there are looking very thin. And this is a problem with offsets everywhere, not just Qatar 2022, but all of the offsetting that's going on in global sport and indeed global industry. You know, there's like much of the renewable energy stuff would probably be happening anyway because it's got so cheap. So it's not clear that you're actually adding to the stock of decarbonisation. Lots of reforestation programmes go terribly wrong, impinge on indigenous land and not maintained and above all deliver their kind of carbon reduction 30 years from now, whereas we need stuff that's going to do something now. So... The claims that this is a carbon zero World Cup, I absolutely don't buy that. Mm. Uh, And there is a degree of greenwashing going on. On the other hand, I applaud the Qataris and FIFA for putting this issue much, much more front and centre. I mean, you've never heard this, I'm sure, about any World Cup before. And I think, in a way, the legacy, a good legacy of Qatar 2022, is that every World Cup is going to have to deal with this issue. Uh, from here on in and deal with this level of scrutiny. I mean, you know, the international football press until very recently didn't really talk much about or know much about carbon offsets. We're going to come out of this knowing quite a lot about it. And, you know, the 2026 World Cup, which is being held in, what, 13 or 14 cities across the entire North American continent. Yeah. Like, what do you think the carbon in, carbon footprint of that is going to be? Mm. So, again, it's a mixed bag. I don't buy that this is um, a, uh, a carbon zero World Cup. I find it slightly disturbing that we are burning the last of our carbon budget in a super mad carbon intensive event you know, in a part of the world that is getting hotter, faster than almost anywhere else. On the other hand, I think from here on in, the Qataris have kind of set a standard and we've achieved a level of public scrutiny of these really vital environmental questions around sport that we have not had before. Okay, yeah. Thank you, David. Well, listen, I very much appreciate uh, your, your time today i hope you enjoy the first half of the world cup in in california and um <laughs> hopefully we can have we to can get up pretty afterwards. early gotta that get up pretty downside, early that's it? it is the down that's is it two almost... in the morning the first one three i think the earliest ones will be like three four in the morning and you know with yeah. the best will in the world it won't be happening the seven o'clock in the morning that's a possibility sure. i mean it's partly why i'm coming back to europe for the second half because there's not many other reasons to be coming back to the UK right now. So no. <laughs> You miss the good bit, though. I feel like the first half is always the good bit, where you get the, the teams that are eliminated before the knockout stages. You know? Sure. You get the football no, the bit is the second half, but the, like, the, first, the first week is just is always so exciting, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm really you know, looking forward to it, but you know, know thyself, I just don't do four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, David, thanks so much, and we'll uh, chat to you again soon. Been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.